Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. It was mentioned earlier that our young adults and high schoolers are at their uh, retreat this weekend, but their spirit is with us. I was in the bathroom before the first service, and if you don't get this, don't worry about it. It's really insignificant. But when I went in there, there were other people in there, and they kept cheering me on and encouraging me. And So I, I walked away going, my words have impact as people are taking this stuff seriously. Uh, we are in uh, the next installment of our next series. And if you could just for a second direct your attention to the uh, uh, side stage over here, the vignette stage. Jude and Angela, I'm not sure who's the, the leader of the whole thing. I think Jude's painting it and Angela's helping him, something like that. Maybe it's first, but uh, they're working on, they've been working on this. Angela's been working on this for uh, ever since we started. And you can see the picture starting to come in to focus of this idea that's stretched out in front of us uh, is a road, a future. We don't know what's on it. We don't know where it's going. Uh, But this is why we're in this series called Next, thinking about what's next for Oak Hills, where are we heading, what does God have for us, where is he taking us, and they're doing a marvelous job of depicting that for us, to remember that there is a future, there's somewhere we're going, and he is taking us there. So with that, if you would stand for our scripture reading. Today it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'm going to be reading verses 6 through 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There are two verses in this reading that particularly jump out and grab me, so I want to reread them. They are verses 7 and 8 of 2 Corinthians 9. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, 
at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And these words describe a vision of God's abundant goodness, this picture that God is enough. He is more than enough. He is abundantly good toward his people, and his abundance flows, and his goodness flows toward his people. I find these words to be spacious, if that makes sense. I find them to be rather expansive. They, they open up a large space to contemplate how big and how abundant and how good God is and to simply revel and bask in the wonder of who he is. These words depict, if you will, a divine ethic of overflowing grace and goodness and blessing and of God's favor constantly streaming toward his people that he loves. And out of this reality of who God is, out of this experiential knowledge of God's abundance and goodness, his people respond by giving freely and by giving abundantly and doing so with gratitude and doing so with joy. To set this up a little bit, Paul wrote these good words to the Corinthian church. And in the middle of this rather long letter he wrote to them, he took two whole chapters from this second letter, chapters 8 and chapter 9. And he talked in those two chapters about money. And he talked about sacrificial giving. So let me set this up a little bit in terms of what was going on here. Far away from the city of Corinth, where this church was located, in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area around Jerusalem, known as Judea, the Christians were experiencing economic difficulties and a measure of stress because of those difficulties. It might have been because of a famine, could have been because the church was under persecution, and so Christians there did not have access to economic means. But these mainly Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem church were struggling financially, and Paul is trying to raise money to help them. So he's asking the Gentile churches he started to donate money to help these Jewish brothers and sisters. And the city of Corinth is approximately a 1,000 miles from the city of Jerusalem. It's way far away. And likely no one from the city of Corinth or from the church in Corinth would ever meet or know or interact with a brother or sister from the church in Jerusalem. But Paul knew something about the power and grace of God expressed and manifested through the actions, example, and unity of the whole church. He knew the kind of impact, the kind of message that was sent when the whole church, the one in Corinth, the other churches in a region known as Macedonia, when they pooled together their resources and in a display of unity and love gave of their resources for the church in Jerusalem, and the other churches in Judea. Paul knew something good for the kingdom happened when this group over here, no matter how far away it was, made sacrifices for this group over there. And these Corinthians, we are told in 2 Corinthians 9, were actually eager to sacrificially help the church in Jerusalem. And a lot of this is in chapter 8, And in the first part of chapter 9, we didn't read. But the enthusiasm of the Corinthians to give to this Jerusalem effort was stirring, is the word Paul uses, to the Macedonian Christians, and it inspired them to do the same. 
It's a beautiful picture of the church coming together and rallying to the aid of those in need. And it is also a beautiful picture of Christians here who sacrifice and give and other Christians elsewhere see this and they're inspired to do similarly. If we were to read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and all of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we would see that the bulk of it, almost all of it, has to do with this issue of money and of giving. And we would notice something else if we read those verses. And that is this. Paul understood the delicate nature of the subject of money. Throughout these couple of chapters, he carefully tries to explain the theological basis behind his request for assistance. And he tries to explain the spiritual formation issues behind this idea of sacrificial giving. And he talks about the integrity with which he intends to distribute whatever money is received to support the Jerusalem churches. So he's wading through these two chapters and he's talking about money and he's talking about giving and he's talking to individuals and he's talking to the church. And so these two chapters are wonderful examples of how the Bible addresses the nitty-gritty stuff of everyday life, both for individuals and for the church. And we just read this a moment ago, at the end of which I said, this is the word of the Lord, and you responded with, thanks be to God. And let's just recall what we're saying there. This is the word of the Lord. This insight, this nitty-gritty, detailed Story Paul is writing to this church about the gifts that they can give to help people over here. This is the word of the Lord. This has survived all of the years, and this was included in what is called the canon of Scripture to teach people like us who would come a couple thousand years later something about money and something about what it, would, what it means to be community. And so for the past few weeks, we've been talking about money and we've been talking about giving in this series that we're calling Next. And just like it was way back in the first century, money and giving are unsettling topics for some people. The subject, and I use this word on purpose, the subject always stirs up emotion, stirs up opinions, stirs up ideas. Many churches... And many Christian organizations have a well-earned, bad reputation for, quote, always talking about money. And now here we are, talking about money and talking about giving. And for the weeks of this series, every week, I have thought about those of you who have not been part of Oak Hills for very long, or maybe on any given Sunday, it's your first Sunday here. And I've thought about this, particularly as it relates to you. Perhaps you started coming not long ago. You don't really know who Oak Hills is. Maybe you just are here for the first time today or last week or whatever. And I've been keenly aware of how strange, weird, even disappointing it may be to come into this room with some kind of expectation or desire for some type of challenge or some type of insight from God's word. And you find out here's another bunch that's talking about money and kind of confirming the suspicions you may already have had that that's what churches and that's what Christian organizations do. And I've said this throughout this series. I hope individually and I hope as a community of faith, we will simply embrace this because it is good for us to wrestle 
with uncertain things and unsettling things. It is spiritually formative for us individually and as a community of faith to venture into challenging subjects like money and wealth and giving. As I mentioned, this next series is considering the question, what's next for Oak Hills? What do we see on the horizon? What's out down the road a ways in the future? Where is God taking us? And part of this series, as some of you know, is the launching of a two-year giving campaign through which we hope to pay off the debt of the church so we have no debt and position Oak Hills for the future where we can begin to dream and pray and creatively imagine ministry without committing $200,000 a year to service debt. And so today... We're talking about the cost of the journey. We're talking about the details behind what it is we're actually trying to do and what it costs to actually do ministry. Oak Hills exists, as we've talked about in previous weeks, to invite people to experience the reality of life in God's kingdom under his reign. We exist to help one another discover God and discover who he is and who we are becoming in him and what life can be like in him. And we exist to help one another discover our calling and our vocation as missionaries. Wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we go to school, whomever we socialize with. And this is why we do church. This is why we're here. This is why we're located in this town. And it happens frequently that you or I intersect with someone in our lives who's going through a difficult time of one sort or another. They're in the midst of a challenge. Maybe in some respect their life or a relationship important to them is beginning to unravel or beginning to fall apart. And yet God is somehow up to something in them. And we get to see it unfold. We get to be with them in the journey and play some small part in the adventure. This is what we might call spiritual work. It's the work of the church. It's the reason Oak Hills exists on this corner. But another aspect of this spiritual work is what we can call the organizational, operational, pay-the-bills side of the equation. See, in our setting at Oak Hills, this may not be true everywhere, but in our setting at Oak Hills, given our facilities and given our property, the spiritual work of the church also includes things like keeping the books and cutting the grass and cleaning the bathrooms and replacing the roof and washing the windows and writing checks to smud. All of that organizational stuff is also part of our spiritual work. Just think of today as an example. The various people who at one time or another throughout this week set up these chairs in these rows where you are now sitting. That just didn't happen. There's no magic wand that we say a spell and all of a sudden they come together. Or made sure the heat was on when we all came in here today. Or from last week or the week before, went around and there's a coffee stain, there's another one, and cleaned the stains of the coffee on the carpet. Or cleaned the bathrooms. Or got here early today and made the coffee that we had when we came in. Or right now they're over serving in the classroom and caring for our children and trying to bring spiritual input to our children. All of these things, and we could name many more, are equally part of the spiritual work of being the church 
and doing the church, and we want to talk about this a bit today. But as we've gone along in this next series, a couple of key principles continue to emerge in my mind, and I have to keep saying them. Crucial to this series and crucial to this giving campaign are these two key principles So I want to keep reminding us of these before we jump in. And the first is, for the follower of Jesus, for the person who says, I am his disciple, I am a Christian, I belong to him and I'm seeking after him, all of life, every speck of it, every inch of it, is indeed spiritual. All of life, we might say, is an act of worship. Or put it this way, for the follower of Christ, for the Christian, all of life is lived under this wide arc that we might call the kingdom of God. And this arc encompasses our life and everything in our life. So whatever little compartment of our life that seems like a compartment that is outside of this arc, it in fact is within the arc. So the financial, the relational, the marriage, the physical, the thought life, the vocational life, our job, where we live, how we spend money, on and on and on for the follower of Christ It all happens within this wide arc of the kingdom of God, which is a long-winded way of saying that money and giving is part of, an integral part of, our spiritual life and our devotion to God. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 13, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then Luke continues, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Fascinating insight and wisdom from the writer Luke. The religious leaders, he says, are the ones who loved money. So they rolled their eyes and they shook their heads when Jesus brought the subject up. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, another verse that gives us a clear statement of how money and giving is part of our life with God. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So the first overarching principle is that our money, our spending, our giving is all part of our life in God's kingdom. And the second principle comes from today's scripture reading, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We are hopeful throughout this next giving campaign that many people will make big sacrifices to pledge to this giving campaign beyond what they think they are able to so we can pay off this debt. We hope everyone who considers Oak Hills to be their church will prayerfully consider where they can sacrifice so we can ultimately be debt-free as a church. And we certainly, without a doubt, there's no question, we have the means within this congregation to raise the money and pay off the loan. That is without a doubt. But we also want this to be an anti-giving, giving campaign, which means what you give is between you the handful of people you trust and talk to with about these things, and the Spirit of God. And if you simply cannot overcome the creepy factor, you can't overcome 
what may feel like a greasy part of this next giving campaign. The idea that this is slicked up and cooked up. If you just simply, for whatever reason, cannot get through the weird part of this or get over the weird part of it, then as I've said before, don't give any money to the giving campaign. Or in the language of 2 Corinthians 9, 7, feel no compulsion to give. We would rather bring in less pledges and less money than try to manipulate people to do what they really don't want to do. And we will receive with gratitude whatever comes in, and we will move on. I was telling somebody after the first service, and and I don't know what all this is for, and and I'm not trying to uh, paint myself in a good light, but I am... I feel like, anyway, I'm really uh, open-handed about this whole thing. I, I don't have this idea that I'm going to be disappointed or we're going to be disappointed if X amount doesn't come in. We are praying and hoping for all of it to come in, but I don't have this white-knuckle thing going on. I feel very relaxed about uh, whatever comes in and trusting that God is up to something, and we'll see what happens. So let's dive in a little more specific and talk for a few minutes about the cost of the journey. Many years ago, I was speaking on giving, and I was talking about the real costs of doing church, the nuts and bolts stuff, things like annual utility costs and staff salary costs. And actually, I remember one of the things in particular, we showed a number that that indicated how much we spend on goldfish crackers every year that end up in the classrooms of our children. And I remember after that particular service, someone came up afterward and they looked like they were in shock and they had nice things to say about the message because, in their words, and this is a direct quote, I thought there was a mother ship somewhere who gave you guys all the money you needed to do this stuff. And it's kind of like, well, let me introduce you to the mother ship. You know, you're looking at them and I'm looking at it. And if you kind of look around the room, you say, what's the mother ship of Oak Hills? Is there like a a daddy Warbucks, if you will, that supplies all of it? It's sitting right next to you. We're the mothership. So like we go around at one of these greetings. Hi, my name is mothership. Really? My name's mothership too. So let's talk for a second about why Oak Hills even has a debt that we need to try to pay off. Many years ago, 1994, we moved onto this property. And in the years 1997, 98, and 99, we had a three-year giving campaign called Catch the Vision to raise money and build this building where we are now sitting. So 20 years ago, a group of people helped pay for this building, made sacrifices to pay for this building. Some of them are no longer living. Some of them have moved. Some of them no longer attend Oak Hills. And some of them still attend Oak Hills. Our first service in this room was on Christmas Eve 1999, a little over 20 years ago. And a few weeks before that service and before this carpet was laid down that you're looking at right on the floor here, the church gathered together in this room one night. I believe it was a Thursday night. And among other things, we wrote names of people we loved on the bare concrete floor. People we were praying for. People we were hoping would one day find God. It was interesting after the first service, I had a couple people come up to me with tears in their eyes because they were here that night and they remembered it. I had one person tell me how uh, one of those folks has now died and before they died, they had a chance to talk to them about Jesus and life with him and they gave their life to Christ. So we raised a bunch of money back then through a giving campaign. I think it was around $3 million and then we took out a mortgage 
for the rest of the cost of this property and this building. And we had a different approach to doing church back then. And at the time, we had a very aggressive growth plan that we thought would eventually bring many thousands of people and enable us to pay the loan back in a relatively quick amount of time. But then, and this is a little bit weird to even say this, December of 99, we have our first service right after this giving campaign ends. Then in the summer of 2000, a mere six months later, we sensed God was inviting us on a new journey and in a different direction. And not anywhere near the direction of aggressive growth and all those things that had defined us for the decade of the 90s. So we began a decade-long process of trying to prioritize and pursue what we now call spiritual formation in Christ-likeness, this fascinating and wonderful idea of the Spirit of God cultivating the character of Christ in our inner being so that we become more like Him. It's a long story. I won't get into it now. But the debt we are paying off in this next giving campaign is the remaining amount of the mortgage we took on this building and on this property way back when. So I want to show you some slides to kind of make this a little bit clearer. You can see this is the giving campaign. We've been talking about this. You can go to the next slide, Kim, and kind of a look at it this way. The whole pie, the challenge we're facing, if you think of it as a pie, represents the debt we have. And right now, after the year-end offering's been given and so on and so forth, that total amount of debt is $1.44 million. You go to the next slide. And right now, if you look at that pie, there's a monthly mortgage we pay of $16,815 per month. Now, very recently, in fact, we're still wrapping up the, the fine details, we refinanced the $1.44 million. I mentioned this a few weeks ago because the interest rate was favorable. The length of the loan was switching from 20 years to 10, and um, it was just the right time to do it. We had people looking at it and determined this was the right uh, time to refinance. The 16815 is what we pay every month. That's our mortgage payment, and that's the amount it was before we refinanced. And so uh, when we refinanced, we, uh, the payment lowered. How much we have to pay every month dropped, but we are keeping it at 16815 That's what we budgeted, and that's what we intend to pay every month. So that means that a couple thousand dollars a month will go directly to the principal. And that $16,815, we are hoping we pay that every month for two years. And you can see up there in this new loan we now have, the first year's interest rate is 2.49%. And the previous loan's rate was 4.91%. So we're saving a bunch of money in the first year, uh, upwards of $40,500 in interest by having refinanced. And then in years 2 through 10, the new interest rate will go to 4.61, still less than what we've been paying, but up a little bit more. So our plan is to pay the 16815 per month. There's a, a chunk of that that will go directly to principal, and by the time two years are up, about that much of the pie will be gone, the $1.44 million, which will leave somewhere in the neighborhood of $900,000 to $1 million left of the pie after the first two years. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to have pledges in this giving campaign that come up to that $1 million over the next two years for the purposes of paying off the remaining loan. So the, when you hear me say things like $195,000 a year to service debt, it's that 16815 times 12. 
And so what we're trying to do, as you can see from this, is we're going to keep paying the same amount. A bunch of it's going to go to principal. The first year, we've got a lower interest rate. We're going to encourage people, if you can front load whatever you give, it's to our advantage. We'll refinance less at a slightly higher rate in year two. So go to the next slide. If we do that, get that million, pay that 16.8, the pie will be gone, and we'll have zero debt. And at that point, roughly $200,000 is freed up. And here's the beautiful thing, and I'd be uh, exaggerating if I said we have this all figured out, but we don't. But now we get into this fun time of discerning, what do we do with this? How can we invest this in ways that are beneficial to the kingdom? It might be through the hiring of future staff who can lead us in particular areas and take the values we talk about in here and flesh them out in a more detailed way. It could be through as the culture continues to shift. We've talked about this as we travel that road that's going we don't know where, but as as a church exists in this post-Christian culture, I have... A a strong instinct that says what's going to be needed are out-of-the-box ministries to be uh, in order to reach the culture and represent the kingdom in the culture, meaning ministries we haven't thought of yet, things that are a little crazier, things that don't fit with, quote-unquote, a program of the church, but they're, they're more creative and more imaginative than perhaps we've been in the past. And then, of course, some of that money will continue to help repair this facility, which is now 20 years old, and maintenance and so forth. But the truth is we don't know all the details about where it's going to go. But that's a bit of an idea of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we plan to do it. But I want to return for the remainder of our time to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 from our scripture reading and from this experience the Corinthians had of sacrificially giving to help their brothers and sisters far away in Jerusalem. Paul is not timid. He's not bashful about asking the Corinthians to make good on their desire to help these people far away. And he describes what I'm calling three foundational attitudes behind sacrificial giving. And the first attitude is worship. And I think this is vital for us as we think about this. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I want to reread verses 12 through 15. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Their sacrificial gift, what the Corinthians were going to put forward and give for this Jerusalem relief effort, was an expression of their worship of God. Put it another way. It was, their, it was an act of worship for them to give out of their own resources, to help others. It was a way for them to say, God has done so much for us, we are going to do something for someone else. And Paul makes this beautiful statement in verse 14, and in their prayers, meaning the Jerusalem church's prayers, for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. And this word surpassing literally means to throw beyond 
It's a great word. Here's, here's a picture of what it is. It's Derek Carr of the Oakland Raiders, the quarterback. He surpasses the football. He throws it beyond any receiver. They can't catch it because it's past where they are. And so that's the idea of surpassing to go beyond. That's a slam on the Raiders if you're asleep. But to go beyond where, uh, what you would expect or what you would think. This idea of surpassing grace is God's indescribable grace. It's God's unmatched grace. It's unparalleled grace. It's grace that if you sat here all day and said, I'm going to figure this out, you wouldn't because you couldn't. So it's grace beyond words. It's grace beyond understanding. It's grace beyond description. And so Paul is saying to these Corinthians, this gift you give to the Jerusalem Christians is a manifestation and display of God's amazing grace. Your gift to them is a testimony to the many gifts God has given you, which is another way to say your gift to them is an act of worship to the God who has given you so much. So let's step back for a second. I recognize how gnarly this whole subject is for some people. Money, getting into it, oh my goodness, it presses on us. But sacrificial giving is one way to worship God for the surpassing grace he has given to us. His abundant goodness shown to us in Christ in a thousand ways prompts a response of worship. And one way we worship God is by sacrificially giving. And I would say one way people like us who live in this kind of affluent community, one very important way we worship God is through sacrificial giving. It's a wonderfully simple idea that permeates the entire Bible. The abundant grace God gives to us, we in turn offer to others. The forgiveness we receive from God, we give to others. The love we receive, we offer to others. The many good gifts, the grace of God, he gives. We follow his example and give to others. The second foundational attitude is generosity. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Then verse 11, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So Paul is challenging the Corinthians to be generous in their giving. He's saying to them, give whatever your heart purposes to give, But remember, if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you reap generously. He says back in chapter 8 and verse 7, Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. It's a really interesting idea. Excel in this grace of giving away your money. Do it well. Give generously. 
excel at giving. And you know something? We do that at Oak Hills. We really do. Our giving is strong. One of the reasons we can talk about this and one of the reasons we can pursue a giving campaign is because so many of you have been faithful uh, and we are in a position where we are not having to scramble to meet our general budget. We can think about how do we get ourselves into a better position to actually do ministry. Many people at Oak Hills recognize the spirituality of money and the importance of sacrificial giving, and we do this well. And yet, it's also true, as it is in most settings, a relatively small percentage of people who come to Oak Hills carry the majority of the financial responsibility of Oak Hills. The 80-20 thing applies here like it applies almost everywhere. Studies vary on the statistics of Christian giving, but in general, Christians give approximately 3% of their income to their church. And this number is declining for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is the perception that the church is out of touch in a post-Christian culture, increasingly irrelevant, so, quote, why should we give our money to it? And you know what? It's a good question for those of us in leadership to be grappling with. But one of the practical questions surrounding giving in general and this giving campaign in particular is, how much do I give? How much should my family give? How much should I as an individual pledge uh, to this giving campaign? Answer, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Yeah, I get that. Those are nice words. I get all that. doesn't help me. How much do we give? How do we decide that? What are the guidelines for figuring out how much to give? Well, we've talked about this discernment vigil. All it is is an hour to come and work through some materials that will be provided to you to try to open up space and see if God helps you with that issue. Lorraine will talk about that in a moment. Let me tell you what this, how this story has worked for Julie and I ever since we've been married. When we first got married which was 28 years ago, because of the teaching we had received in the church that we were attending. Um, when we first got married, we had this commitment to each other right away. We gave 10% of our money away. And most of that went to the church where we were attending. Like I said, we started doing it when uh, 28 years ago. I was in seminary at the time. And we were first married, and Julie was working as a nurse, and I was working two part-time jobs. And that had been taught to us Uh, throughout high school and into college at the church we went to, it just got ingrained in us that you start giving sacrificially with 10% and you increase it from there. So that's been our guide ever since, to to strive for 10% of our income, to be given away to the work of God's kingdom, and the vast majority of it to go to the church where we were attending. And to us, the teaching of the Old Testament though it's not a rigid rule to follow, the 10% that we find in the Old Testament, it helps put context to sacrificial giving. Because if we say, well, sacrificially give, I'll speak for myself. Someone says to me, sacrificially do anything. Sacrificially give, whatever. I'll find a way to do that that's not quite so sacrificial. It's just how I'm wired. I'll think it's sacrificial. I might try to say it's sacrificial. But I need need something that gives me some guidelines. And for us, the 10% 
from the Old Testament has been that guideline. But some people don't like to look at the Old Testament in that way because, as they say, quote, it is in the Old Testament. We don't follow that anymore. So what does the New Testament say about giving? Here's what it says. It says, give what you have decided in your heart to give. It also says in chapter 8, the Macedonians gave to this Jerusalem relief effort, and here's the phrase, as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. It also says, excel in this grace of giving. And it also says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. We used to say this years ago, that if you want to get off the cheapest, give 10%. Because that's cheap. it's cheaper to do the Old Testament thing than the New Testament thing. Because the New Testament thing says, all of who you are is a sacrifice and an offering to God. And you should surrender in that way. And so, in just kind of a playful way, we talk about uh, starting with 10%. what Julie and I have done, and then seek to go from there. But the New Testament encourages sacrificial giving. The how much question is for you to discern with your family or with the people you talk to about this. Rich generosity is one of the phrases in the New Testament. Giving at a level that is commensurate with the grace we have received from God. If someone said to me, help me figure out what to do, what I would say is, think of it this way. Give at a level that is commensurate with the grace you have received from God. And again, some people have challenges to this. There's other restrictions. I get that. But the most important thing is is to work this out in your own relationship with God and practice generosity as he leads you in that. And the third foundational attitude is joy. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. And this is really important to this giving campaign, again, because uh, this is not a subject people generally like, but this idea of giving with joy. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion. Paul tells the Corinthians that another group, the Macedonians, are also helping with the Jerusalem relief effort. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, he says, The Macedonians urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Cheerful giving. And both the Corinthians and the Macedonians have an enthusiasm to give. It seems as though the one who understands the extravagance of God's grace and the importance of proclaiming the good news and the ultimate reality of God's kingdom joyfully and willfully gives away their money to God's work in this world. It's done with joy. It's done with celebration. It's done with uh, gratitude. This is really crucial. The good news of the Christian gospel is not just another fine project to support in this world. What we believe as followers of Christ is it is, in fact, the hope of the world. It is the hope of desperate people. All sorts of good and benevolent efforts can be made to improve the lives of people in this world and make their lives better. And those efforts should occur, and we should participate in those efforts. But the heart of the gospel says Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And we do our best to proclaim that truth. We do our best to announce that news, and we do our best to find ways to incarnate and to embody this idea of what Jesus can do in the lives of individuals and in the lives of people. So I'd like you to, as we wrap this up, just to stop for a second and think about and imagine Oak Hills in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. 
Back in 1997 and 98 and 99, when the giving campaign was talked about back then, we talked about, think of Oak Hills in 20 years. Think of the people who will be worshiping God in this building that we're trying to pay for. And here we are 20 years later. It seems like forever, but it's not. And many of the people who made sacrifices that we are now enjoying are no longer here. And they're no longer on this planet. But they gave and they sacrificed so that a slice of the community of Jesus in this town would still be here, would still be proclaiming, would still be worshiping, and would still be sending people out to go into this community and bring the reality of Christ. Some of the names that are under this carpet, they're all probably worn off by now, but some of the names that were written on the floor before this carpet was put down, I know for a fact some of those names eventually did intersect with someone from Oak Hills and did intersect with the ministry of the church, and some of those names represent people who eventually did give their life to Christ. Pretty powerful thing to think about of what exactly it is that we're seeking to do. And it's good for us to think beyond our time. It's good for us to think, there will be a day when I won't be here. And that sound system that we replaced will still be announcing good news. There will be a day when I won't be here and you won't be here. And there will still be people worshiping God and seeking to go out and impact this community. And it is spiritually good for us to think beyond what we will benefit from and sacrificially give to that end. Let's pray together. We worship you, Lord Jesus, as our King, and we thank you for what you're up to in our midst. And we continue to pray that your Spirit will lead us and have his way with us as we seek to be faithful to you. And all this we pray in Jesus' name.